The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 16. And while you're there, um, I thought I would give you a little heads up on what we're looking at doing next. Um, We have one, maybe two sermons left in the book of Mark. Depends on how long-winded I am next week. But... um, we got one or two left in Mark, and then uh, we were trying to really wrestle through where we're going to go next with this. Um, and that hasn't been a super easy question to ask. There were a lot of things we were considering, um, maybe doing something on a topical level. We had done First Samuel, if you guys remember, like eons ago. So maybe going back and doing Second Samuel. But um, what we actually landed on, as strange as it is, and I hope it ends up being really exciting for you guys too, to do something kind of new and a little out of the box, we're going to study the book of Amos together first before we go next. Um, Amos is one of the prophets. Um, We've really never tackled a prophetic writing here at Heritage before, and um, Amos is one that's particularly applicable to the culture that we live in, and it's one that's historically significant actually to our country. Um, Because if you guys know, during the Civil Rights Movement, um, when uh, Martin Luther King and, you know, getting blacks the right to vote, segregation, all those kind of things, there was a famous verse that came up over and over and over that many of you remember through that time from the book of Amos chapter 5 verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That was a significant verse in our history at the time as a nation as well, but, but that's not why we're studying it. Um, the time frame, the prosperity, the things that were going on in there are actually incredibly applicable, as if one book's not applicable to us though, right? But th- this one was, and it'll just be fun for us to do something. It's, they're short, so it shouldn't take super long. And then we're kind of kicking around some different ideas that I'm not going to tell you about yet um, for, for some things that we're sort of excited about doing um, as we move into the summer here together on Wednesday nights that I think will be fun. So uh, trying to mix it up a little. You know what I mean? It gets boring when you don't mix things up. So that's the plan. But right now we're in Mark chapter 16, and um, we're going to start with verse 1, and we're going to be going through verse 8. And uh, if you would like to plan ahead, well, you don't have to turn there, but yeah, you're the Wednesday night crew. You guys are like the varsity, right? So put your finger in Mark, and then hang a right, and go to 1 Corinthians 15 what I just read when we opened. First Corinthians 15. As I said when we were opening, this passage that we're dealing with now and the reality, the truth behind it is the core of our faith. The Ten Commandments is not the core. The birth of Christ is not the core, as important as that was. The crucifixion of Christ, as important and massive as it is, That's not it either. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead and the truths that that represents is what makes all the difference in the world for us. And as I read when we opened up, Paul says this himself. This isn't just my opinion. This is what the scriptures breathed by God say. For in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For I delivered to you as of what importance? Come on like you're awake. As of what? First importance. That means it's the most important because it's first What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And you say, well, it sounds like all of those things are of first importance, Jeff. How can you just say it's the resurrection? As you continue on in this passage, what you realize Paul is teaching about specifically is the resurrection. And he goes on to emphasize how important this is to us. If you look at verse 17, 
It says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In Christ we have hope in this life only. We of all people are most to be pitied. So he says this, that out of all of these things, as important as they all were, if Christ doesn't raise from the dead, this is a complete giant waste of time. Everything we're doing here has no significance whatsoever. We would be way better off staying at home, watching television, or doing honestly anything other than being here. Because if Christ doesn't raise, we're still in our sin. If Christ doesn't raise, we are still dead. And the reason why is because if Christ doesn't raise from the dead, then he's not the Messiah. He is not the Son of God. He is just another false prophet in a long line of false prophets. And what's the point of following that? That's what he says. This is an incredible important thing. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to read back here in Mark verse, chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. And we're going to look at three particular aspects of the resurrection, and that's all. But since it is the resurrection, and I'm an old Baptist boy, they all start with R. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the record itself, the account, what actually took place. We're going to look at the relevance of it, and then we're going to look at the response to it. The record, the relevance, and the response. So let's read this passage, and then we'll dive into these things, starting in verse 1, Mark 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun has risen or had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. God, I ask for your grace right now, that your spirit would, Lord, speak through such as me, Lord, to teach us, that your spirit would be our teacher, that, God, you would awaken our hearts to this truth in ways maybe not before, remind us of this reality. And that it might affect us, Lord, that this wouldn't just be some gathering just to hear a clever speech or a boring one, Lord, but that instead, Lord, this would be something that we realize we are here bowed before the very word of God. And may that word, Lord, take hold of our lives and affect us, Lord. May we see the world through it. So we pray, Lord, as we often do, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my King my rock, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here we are, Mark 16, 1 through 8. We're looking at, first, as I told you, we're going to look at the record, what actually takes place. We're going to look at the relevance, why this is such a big deal, how this affects us today, and then we're going to look at the response. So let's just dive right in first to the record. The Gospels, this is one of the four Gospels, and the Gospels give us four, I'm going to say, varying accounts of the resurrection. I did not say conflicting or contradictory accounts. I'm saying varying accounts. 
Today, I saw something significant happen that doesn't happen every day. I got to see a high-speed chase end in a crash right in front of me, and it was awesome. I mean, tire went out, went up on the curb, car cuts back across traffic, hops a curb, goes out, dude jumps out of the car, tries running. Cops are like running. Somebody was like, how many cops were there? I said, all of them. The, every police car in Medford was chasing this guy, and they go storming around, guns drawn. It was awesome. And I'm like wanting to watch, and then I get the, move it along, move it along. It's like, ah. Mom and dad used to always send me to bed before I saw the good stuff. And that's what that was too. But I watched this. Now I saw this and other people saw this. There's cops that saw this. And eventually as they're working through all this and when they go to court, there are people that are going to come along. Assuming this ends up, this, it looks significant. So assume that goes to court and somebody, not me because they shoved me on along, but some people are going to be called to come to the witness stand and to give testimony of what they saw. And everyone's going to have a little different take on it. People notice different things. Car was parked in a different spot, so they had a different angle. Variations, but the hope is that if they all saw the same event take place, that their testimony, though it may have different angles and variation, it will describe the same event. In fact, that's what our court system wants, right? They want all of these witnesses to be able to show that this really took place. And honestly, the more witnesses that saw it, the better, right? So in the Bible, we have in our Gospels four different accounts of the resurrection. Variations, not conflicting stories. There's different nuances, different people, different characters that are brought up, none contradictory, each with its own flavor, but all describing the same significant event. And so today, we are pretty much only, although I'm going to bring a verse in later, sticking with Mark as we go through this. Remember, Mark was written by Mark, who was, we believe, giving the eyewitness testimony of who? Somebody knows. Who is it? Come on. Peter. This is Peter's story that we're reading here in the book of Mark, okay? Peter's story through Mark as he tells us this story. And so, we dive into this and we see in verse 1 it says, When Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, it's important to note something right off the bat, okay? We, we can have a sort of um, chronological snobbery when we look at things, because what I mean by that is we are so far along kind of the time continuum, if you will, and there's stories that we become really familiar with as year after year after year goes by and more and more Easter services where we see these things. And what we can end up doing is because we are so distanced from the actual events that we can look at these events with a sort of snobbery. Like we understand what's going on and no one else would have got it. And, and here we have this story where these three women are coming to the tomb. They're coming to anoint what? The body of Jesus. And that's significant because what that means is they weren't coming there on the what day? On the third day expecting to see a live body. That's significant because how many times over and over and over Jesus is saying on the third day on the third day on the third day in fact a lot of people believe that the way that that runs theme, kind of as a theme over and over through the gospel accounts should lead us to believe that this was a continual emphasis from Jesus to his followers don't forget the third day i'm going to rise on the third day that he said it over and over and over well now it's the third day jesus has died they're not coming there looking for a body. They're, they're not a live one. 
They're coming there to anoint a dead body. That's their plan. And before we get too down on the women for not believing and for coming there, let's give them some credit. They came. Because how many men are present in this account right here? Universal symbol for how many men are present? None. The men didn't show it all. Girl power, amen? At least they came. At least they came. But no one is there. Why? Because listen, Israel's been through this before. History even shows us that over and over and over, there had been dozens of messiahs. People that had come onto the scene claiming to be the messiah, leading revolts, getting the people fired up, follow me, follow me. And in every single case, when the revolt got big enough, the government stepped in, Rome took charge, whatever the case may be, and they were all killed and they never got up and walked again. None of them. And so they've seen this happen over and over and over. Now Jesus is dead. And in each case, the, the leader, this quote-unquote Messiah, is executed. He's killed. He's buried. It's over. The people disband, and they go back to life as usual, waiting for the next one. And, and, and we know this to be the case. We know this is the way they're feeling about things because of the account on the road to Emmaus that's going to come later. Because remember those disciples that are walking and Jesus comes to them alive, they don't even recognize that he's alive. They are so not looking for a live Jesus to be walking around and he can tell they're bummed, and he says, what is going on? What's the matter? And they're like, are you crazy? Are you living in a box? Did you not see? Do you have no idea what happened? And then they have this significant statement. They say this, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You guys remember that statement? That is a recurring theme through the life of Israel, especially during this time. As Israel is under the oppressive hand of Rome, there have been many people wanting to come in and be that, not theological, but this political leader that was going to free Israel. And time and time and time again, it wasn't them. They died, and on the third day, they didn't come walking back out again. And so it just looks the same. This is what they're believing. They loved him, and give the women credit, they loved Jesus so much that they're still willing to, and who knows what they're even risking coming here to do this, but they're coming because they love Jesus and they can't leave this role undone. So we give them credit because the guys didn't even show. But it's significant to notice, they're not coming expecting to see Jesus walk out. And I think sometimes we can look at these stories and think, if I was there, I'd have brought like a folding chair and I would have sat out front and watched that thing go down. But no one did. No one did. So we don't want to look at them with any sort of snobbery, but we do need to understand they're not looking for Jesus to walk up to them, okay? They're looking for a dead body. In verse 3, it says they didn't plan very far because, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They don't expect the stone to be moved. They expect it to be shut and the body to be lying inside, and they've got this plan, but they didn't think very far. Now they're getting close, and they're like, oh, did you bring the wedge? Did you bring the crowbar? Oh, who's going to roll the stone away when we get here? And so then it says in verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. Now here's where, if you just took this account alone, I don't mean biblically, because people would balk at tons of stuff before you get to here, and we'll get to that. But in this story, this is the part where people start to balk, where people that want to look at this story maybe as some sort of historical truth, they start to go, okay, this is where the legend kicks in, the legend of the stone, 
And they walked up, these ladies, they couldn't touch it, and then all of a sudden, whoa, the stone was moved. You guys aren't really buying any of this kind of stuff. But here's what we need to know, too. This doesn't read at all like legend, at all. Not at all. In fact, it reads like an eyewitness account. And the reason it's in, that we can see this is simply the fact that there's women here. I mean, you guys may know this, maybe not, but at this time, women were not allowed to testify in court because it was absolutely believed that women were too emotional, too untrustworthy, get too worked up, and so their testimony will get us nowhere. So no woman, for any reason whatsoever, was ever allowed to come into court and testify on issues. Their word just wasn't to be trusted. So if you're making this up, like if you're, if you're creating legend, you would never have women be the first people come in this particular situation. You would never have the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ be women and then come back and bring testimony because you would say, they're just too emotional. They're sad. They don't even know what they're doing. They're bringing spices on Sunday. They should have done that Friday probably anyway. They're a wreck and we don't believe them. And yet this is the story that we're given. If you were inventing legend, you wouldn't do this, but this is an eyewitness report. And this is where people will go, yeah, but you don't really believe any of that nonsense, do you? I mean, have you ever wrestled before with some of the things we believe? Now, this is Wednesday night, and, and this is discipleship. This is what we do. So, so while I hope there are unbelievers amongst us who will chew on these things and think about these things and come talk to us, we teach Wednesday night in particular through the lens of everyone here is seeking to follow Jesus. This is a discipleship class, okay? So, so can we just be honest, though? You ever just stop and think about what we believe? Like just in your flesh, just stop and think. And I don't mean just this. God created the world by speaking it in seven days. He created a woman, pulled a rib, or excuse me, created a man. Then he pulled a rib out of the guy's side, fixed that back up, turned it into a woman. They were living together in perfect harmony and in joy, naked by the way, with only one rule, don't eat the fruit on that tree, but you can have anything else. And then this talking snake came along. And the talking snake came along and was like, come on, seriously, look at this tree. Like, that's seriously good. And they're like, you know, you're right. And they eat it, and then everything in the entire universe went, because they bit into an apple or whatever. And then you go down the road, go down the list. Some of the things we believe. The sun stands still in Joshua. The Red Sea parts from Moses. I mean, can we just be honest? We believe some crazy stuff. If you didn't have the Bible to lean on and you just started telling people these kinds of stories, you might get hospitalized. <laughs> prophet? There was a prophet who Jesus sent him to go one other place, but he didn't want to do that, so he went the other way. And so he got on a boat and a storm came. They threw him off the boat. A fish ate him. He lived for three days inside the belly of a fish. The fish puked on the shore. He got out. He was cool. Walked to where he was supposed to go. Said what he wanted to. I mean, come on. Wait. Here's, we need to be honest about some things, right? Because I think sometimes, especially if you get too into things like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Apologetics and proofs and all those kind of things. Look, this is the most trustworthy thing that has ever existed on earth. This is trustworthy and it will stand any scrutiny in the world. But we are dealing with quite literally supernatural events all the time. And, and it's okay. We ought not be ashamed of the reality that sometimes our faith is, is asking us to believe things that some people are going to balk at. 
I mean, Jesus even said so. They're not all going to believe. Paul says they think we're foolish because of who we are. The wisdom of the cross is foolishness to them. And so some look at this story, and there are critics out there. Now, look, you can, there's books like Who Moved the Stone and all of these other things that can give you so many things to help you believe the reality of this actual account that absolutely took place. But tonight, we're not going to go there. I'm trusting that every one of us understand all of these things and that we believe these things, not because someone proved it to it, because we believe it because we've experienced it. That's Paul's testimony, isn't it? He's like, look, Jesus is alive. Those people saw him. Those people saw him. There's 500 people. Well, some died, but those people saw him. And hey, I saw him. And, and so the testimony of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ back then was very rarely about some CSI episode to prove that it actually happened, CSI Israel or something like that. No, what it was was Jesus is alive. I've met him. It's true. And that's the same testimony that we have today. It doesn't mean we're blind fools. It doesn't mean we're believing something that there's no evidence for or that we're buying into old myths. It doesn't mean that. But I do think it's safe for us to just admit the fact that, you know what, there are some re amazing, remarkable, some might call them foolish, I would say astounding supernatural things that God does because God is not bound to the laws of nature. And frankly, if he was, he wouldn't be able to save us from our sins in the first place. Amen? And so this is true. We do believe these things. Things like verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So think about it. The stone's been moved. There's an angel, and he's pointing to where Jesus laid, and he's saying, look, he was laying right there. This is another one of those things that we need to understand. It is, this is a remarkable event. He, the other accounts tell us that, that there on the stone where he laid, that the grave clothes, the, the wrappings were there, but that they were undisturbed. So this is different than like when you get home tonight and you're throwing on your pajamas and, come on, man, we know about the middle pile. We're not sure if it's really clean or dirty yet, so we find somewhere to throw it and we'll decide later. And we just, you know, am I the only one that does this? Somebody help me. Am I the only one that does this? And Bronwyn's here tonight. Shucks. You didn't catch any of this. You guys have middle piles. I know you do. Anyway, it, but it's not, it's not like when your teenagers throw off their clothes and they just land wherever they land and we'll see when they move. You know, that kind of a thing. This is a supernatural event. These clothes have not been removed. They've been imparted out of, I guess. I don't know how you would say that. They're still laying there completely undisturbed. And people would say, that's, that's supernatural. Yes, he's triumphing over sin and death. Yes, absolutely supernatural. That's what that means. And so when we realize the grandness of what's really going on, and that's a much bigger thing to think about than, well, but the clothes really laid there? Yes, they did. If that's what's tripping you up, I'm sorry. I'm more amazed by the fact that here's a man who came that said, they're going to kill me. In three days, I'm going to rise again. And he pulled it off. If that guy can do that, I'll listen to anything he has to say. I'll believe anything he does. I'm in. Because no one else has ever done that before. And so Jesus raises from the dead. The stone's been moved. The women come in. There's an angel there. And the angel says to them, look, this is the place where they laid. Verse 7, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. 
Two things to note in this part of the record. One, we already mentioned when we dealt with Peter um, and his denial of Jesus three times during the trial. But Peter's name is here and gets special notice, not because it's his account. These aren't Peter's words. This is the words of the angel who is specifically saying again, and Peter. So Peter is specifically singled out because Peter has specifically made a royal mess of some of these things, and Jesus, Jesus knows. Jesus knew it was going to happen. He told Peter it was going to happen. And I just think that's, again, worth pointing out, that the one who probably needed this good news more than anyone was the person who specifically got mentioned. Make sure you tell Peter. Because You ever felt like you needed the grace and mercy of Jesus more than anybody else around you before? If you haven't, you haven't lived long enough. And to know that the grace and mercy of Jesus is there for those who need it most, doesn't that make you relax a little bit (laughs) and thankful? God's grace was there for the one who needed the most. The second thing is, is he sort of chides them a little bit. He says, hey, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Just as he told you. I mean, he said in Mark 14, verse 28, it says, After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Those are the words of Jesus. And I love that the angel's like, Hey, he he told you, don't be alarmed. He said he was going to do this now. Giddy up, scurry along. I just think that's great. And so in verse 8, it says, They went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Anyone else think they might walk back and not say anything for a while while you're getting back, kind of compose some thoughts? I mean, it's early Sunday morning. You just saw kind of a ghost, in a sense, in a tomb. Like, I think that would freak all of us out a little bit, right? So this is the account of the resurrection from the viewpoint, from the testimony of John Mark or of Peter indirectly. This is the account we have. So that's the, the happening. That's the account. That's the report. But what about the relevance? Why is this such a significant deal when it happened 2,000 years ago? And and even if we we could easily say it's a significant deal, let me maybe even fine-tune that a little more. Why is this so relevant that it should affect us on a day-to-day basis 2,000 years later? Why is that? And, And look, that's a fair question because that's what people are saying about our beliefs all the time, even within the church or church, depending on who we're talking about. Um, You guys know a guy named Rob Bell? You guys have heard his name? A guy who, when he first came on the scene, I had incredible high hopes for him. I was blown away by some of the stuff that he was doing, his artistic and creative way of bringing the truths of Scripture to life. Problem is now he's pretty much a heretic on basically every level. Not pastoring a church anymore, spending a lot of time with Oprah, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And With Oprah, just recently, he did an interview regarding the controversies going on in the church with homosexual marriage and all those kinds of things. And and Oprah asked him, why doesn't the church get it yet concerning marriage and gay marriage? Why don't they get it yet? And this guy, who was once listed as one of the most influential Christians and pastors on the face of the earth, this is what he said. I think the culture's already there, and the church will continue to be more and more irrelevant when it keeps quoting letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. When you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and your sisters, your aunts, uncles, coworkers, and neighbors, and they love each other and they just want to get through life. 
So this is one of our more influential leaders in the last decade in a lot of ways. And he says, the church is irrelevant because it keeps quoting just letters. Doesn't call it scripture, doesn't call it Bible. Just keeps quoting these letters from 2,000 years ago. And as a, as a result, they're just behind and they're just going to get more and more and more irrelevant. That's coming from to some degree or another, though I would disagree with that, but from within. People are believing this. So what's the relevance of this? I mean, is this just like a museum? You guys ever been to a really good museum before? You ever been and seen things like maybe, uh, you know, they do like the mummies will tour different museums or different things like that. And, and you, you go in there and you see these amazing things that may show you, yeah, this happened 2,000 years ago. I see evidence of it right here. All that's true. But in the end, we're not taking it home with us. It's not going to affect anything on our day. You didn't go to work Monday after you went to the museum the day before and do things differently because you saw evidence that the Egyptians and the ancient Egyptians were real. It didn't affect you on a day-to-day. It's just a museum. It doesn't really matter. Isn't that what Christianity is? Isn't that what these letters are? Oh, sure, they were written, but it's irrelevant now. We can't think about this today. That is absolutely not true absolutely not true. And a foolish, foolish, Rob Bell, with all due respect, is a fool to believe this. And he should know better. It's foolish. Why? Well, here's the thing. In this room, we're all different. There's different ages, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different sexes, different histories, different goals, different dreams, going to different places, coming from different places. There are all sorts of differences in this room. But there's some commonalities, and maybe the biggest one is this. No matter where we've come from, or no matter where we hope or think we're headed, we're all going to face the reality of death eventually. Death and that sort of tragedy is the great common denominator in life. No one escapes that. We're all facing that at some point. And so what's the point of all this? Like, what's next? And that's a pretty valid question. Is that not a question every single person on the face of the earth thinks about? And people for centuries in and out of religious faiths or Christianity have tried to wrestle with and answer that question. Nothing happens. We're just dirt. Oh, reincarnation. We come back as that. Oh, ghosts and different levels and spirit worlds and just all sorts of things because everyone knows that death's coming and everyone has a certain bit of trepidation, fear, worry, or wants to know what's on the other side of that thing because it's a pretty major mystery that's coming for us all. Would we agree with that? That's all of us. In addition, then we all face the worries and cares even of this life, the anxieties of getting caught up in things that, that we've sought pleasure or joy or fulfillment in, and time and time again it's let us down. The things that we've, oh my goodness, how many times in our life have we, even consciously or not, thought, I'm going to be so happy when I get that thing. And it might make you happy, but then it's that next thing. I'll be so happy. I mean, I can remember it even just growing up. When I was young, it was like, if I could just get to middle school, they get to go to all the different classrooms and all this stuff. That'd be amazing. And then you get there and you're like, nope, high school where it's at. I still feel small here. I still feel young, but I see all the high schoolers over there. When I get to high school, man, I'm going to be, it's going to be amazing. I can't wait. I'll learn to drive. And then that's the next thing. You get to high school. Now I just need my driver's license. And then you get that and you're like, Mom and dad still have the ropes on me. I need to get out of here. I'm ready to go to college. When I go to college, that's when my life really begins. And then it's what? I need to graduate. 
And you're like, yes, I graduated, but a whole new worry comes now. I need a job because I got a loan. I got to figure all this stuff out. And then you have a wife, and then you have kids and career and more children and college funds, and then retirement comes, and then there's a never-ending stream of things. There's always that next thing because whatever it is we're dealing with in the moment never really fully does it for us, ever. It's too short. It doesn't last lets us down, sets us up, tears us down, whatever the case may be, there's always that next thing that we're always looking for. So we've all dealt with anxieties and fear and all those things. We all understand whether we want to talk about it or realize it or not, that there's something's just wrong. Nothing seems to really work exactly the way we hope it's going to work. And and you can see this even in children. Like, we don't have to grow up to learn this. You can see children in a playground, two and three years old, and they'll say things like, that's not fair. How do they know? Like there's already this understanding that this is right and this is wrong and I'm on the short end of the stick here and this isn't fair. Like we all know this, whether we admit it or want to talk about it or not. All of us know this. So what's the point of all this? Do we matter? Like if, if everything just lets us down, If nothing seems to work out, if the brand new car that you got is eventually going to be a junker, if the clothes that you just bought are eventually going to be worn, if the relationships always seem to have challenges and battles, if if we're all just going to die anyway, what's the point? Like, do we matter? And this might scare you a little bit for some of you, but think about this. Unless one of us does something incredibly remarkable, every single person in this room is two generations away from being completely extinct and forgotten forever with the possible exception of Ancestry.com. For real. How often do you think of your great-great-grandmother? What's your great-great-grandfather's name? I don't know. I mean, we are all that far away from extinction. You guys feeling encouraged? It's true. So look, isn't that a valid question then for all of us to say, what's the point? And what do we do? That's a valid question. What's the meaning of all this, and where are we going? What's the point of all this? Well, let's look at an unlikely source. The Bible, Solomon, a man known for wisdom, he writes this in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 6, 6, he says this, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Go to the ant. I mean, if we're talking about feeling insignificant and things letting us down, Solomon says, hey, go to the ant, Pay attention, consider her ways, and be wise. So there's something we see that he wants us to look at and gain from that will bring us wisdom. And wisdom is what helps us live life, okay? So let's go to the ant. Google the ant. If you'd like, you'll learn all sorts of things about ants. You'll get pictures of ants carrying watermelons away from picnics and all that sort of things, cartoons, all of that sort of stuff. So it's like, okay, what's the worst ant out there? What's, I mean, the fire ant, or some people call them, what, the army ant? You guys remember the most recent horrible Indiana Jones movie where the ants came out and just eat all the, you know, no? Anyway, I'm just on my own completely up here tonight, apparently. But so army ants, in particular, if you Google and look up and learn a little bit about army ants, you will find something that I did not know existed until today. And it's crazy and fascinating and unbelievable. It's called a death spiral. Just out of curiosity, how many in here have ever heard of the ant death spiral? Anyone? Ha <laughs> no, I'm not on my own. You're on. So here, 
Here's what this goes. Think about it. This is amazing. Did you know that army ants are blind? Did you know that? The worker, the foraging army ants that go out and get all this stuff, they're all blind. How does, that, how does that even work? How do they go out and get anything and make their way back anywhere? You'd think they'd just be walking around bumping into everything with their watermelons, like never getting anywhere. They're blind. They use pheromones from either the queen, sense from each other. They follow each other in the lines. Remember that? All of that sort of stuff. That's how they navigate. That's how they get around. So these ants go out by the thousands or millions, totally blind, and they follow one another with those things. But... There's this like miracle, like crazy phenomenon that'll happen every so often that is called the death spiral, or they also call it the ant mill. When this happens, something breaks down somewhere and the ants lose the scent of the pheromone that they were trying to follow. Whatever that lead ant is, who happens to be out front, loses that scent and he starts looking for it and literally starts walking in circles. And what happens? Every other ant follows. I have a picture. Can you put this picture up? See this? This is an in-progress death spiral. That's fun to say. Death spiral going on. And see how they're starting to swirl and swirl right here? Now, here's what's amazing. They will do that for days. They won't stop. They won't eat. They won't go home. They will do that for days until every single one of those ants dies. They will die of exhaustion and starvation, walking in circles. And as they start dying, the bodies start piling up, and those ants will literally, think about this, walk over the dead bodies of the ones that have gone before them and keep following this same spiral over and over and over, somehow thinking it won't be them. So you say, what's the point of all that, Jeff? You learned something on National Geographic and you want to tell us. Here's what I would say. If you were to ask me, what's the point of life? And we talk about the frustrations and all those kinds of things and the fears and death that's coming for everyone. Here's what I would say. Make sure you know who you're following. Make sure you're not following the next one who's gonna die in front of you. Israel has had false messiah after false messiah after false messiah and everyone has died. None of them have come back. And then we have this account here that there's suddenly one that's different. One that can say, there's a different way, guys. Follow me and live, is what Jesus Christ says to us. This is the reality of Scripture. Think of it like this. Do you matter? Absolutely. You have been made in his image. You have been made for relationship with him. And you have been made not to end up in some death spiral pile, but God has literally created every single one of you to live in eternity. That's why you're never satisfied with this place. You're not supposed to be. That's why nothing ever fully works out to give us fulfillment. It's not supposed to. There's only one person, one thing, one place where we get fulfillment at all, and it's not here. It's coming later. And Jesus came, and he says to us in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's pretty important we be aware of who we follow. This is discipleship class. Who we follow matters. And Jesus says, hey, I have a way. Death's coming for all of you, but if you follow me, you will never die. 
That's an incredible truth for us to consider. And then he says, do you believe this? It's the very next line. Whoever follows me will never die. Do you believe this? Which leads us to our last section, the response. So, Everybody, I would imagine, in this room, you don't know about ants, but I'm assuming everybody at some point in time has been invited to a party and has gotten a card, or a wedding, or something like that, and has gotten the card that says RSVP. Everyone's got that, right? Do you guys know what RSVP means? I Googled it. It's French. It's French. It means, does anybody speak speak French? What's that? Respondez, s'il vous plaît. Close? Oui, oui. All right. So, this is what it means. It means please respond. Please get back to us. Now, this is a significant example for what we're talking about because an RSVP is different from a regrets invite. Has anyone ever gotten a regrets invite before? Or maybe you've gotten one, you just don't know it was called that. Um, it's, it's, maybe it's the inner office email that comes around and says, we're having a meeting Friday at noon. I'm assuming everyone's going to be there. If you're not, let me know. That's a regrets email or a regrets invite. So a regrets invite, you're not checking if you're coming, you're checking if you're not coming, and it's assumed that everyone's coming. That's not the gospel. The scriptures don't assume everyone's coming, and you check the list and say, I'm not gonna be able to make it this time, Jesus. It's not, there's an actual invitation. The invitation is clear. Jesus says, come and follow me, and you will live. The invitation's clear. The way is clear. Repent from your sin and follow me. Believe. It's made very, very clear. The warning is clear. If you do not, you will die. And then RSVP. Respond. Respond. A response is needed. Look, the Gospels were not written to give us a historical account of what's going on, though it's an accurate one. The Gospels were not written to give us an accurate biography of people who lived 2,000 years ago, although it is an accurate one. The Gospels were written that we might believe and follow Jesus. In the book of John, it says this, John 20, verse 30 says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this is our discipleship gathering together. Reading the account of the resurrection. We've been studying the account of the life of Jesus from day one here in the book of Mark. It's not written that we learn and go, I'm a little smarter today than I was yesterday and now I know about ants too. It's not written that we might be able to defend our faith for those who would attack it and say that stuff's not relevant anymore. It's not written for any of those reasons whatsoever. It is written that we might respond and that we might believe. And when we understand the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a man who triumphs over death and raises from the dead, look, the only reasonable response is to serve him. Because the other thing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves to us is that he's the king. People asked him, show us you're the one. Show us that you're the son of God. And he said, okay, I'm going to die. On the third day, I'm going to what? I'm going to rise again. That's why the resurrection is so significant. It proves that Jesus is king. 
And this is a little bit difficult and awkward sometimes for us as Americans to really grasp because Americans are the only people on the face of the earth that don't have any positive experience serving or living under a monarchy or under a king. We're the only ones. Everyone else, they might have horrible kings too, but they had good ones and they had good experiences. America's history doesn't have any of that. In fact, our entire history is built on the fact that we will not have a king rule over us I mean, one of the actual mottos of the Revolutionary War that was huge in the war effort here in America was, we serve no sovereign here. That's, that's the backbone of who we are. And, and look, don't, don't get me wrong. The democracy that we live under is the greatest government on the face of the earth. It's the best that's there. But you know why it's the best, Right? It's the best because men are fallen and sinful, and it's the only one that actually takes that into account when it puts it into place. It puts checks and balances in place because it knows that men are wicked and sinful and that they'll get out of control. So the only reason that democracy is the best is because it knows who men really are. But democracy is not the ultimate reality. Democracy will one day expire. It won't be needed anymore because there's a king coming. And he's good and does not need checks and balances. We were created to serve a king. And that pushes against everything that's in us as Americans. But make no mistake, you were created to be ruled by a good, not a tyrant, but a good and loving king. And this testimony, these passages that we're studying have been given to us that we might see who he really is and respond to the reality of Scripture by following him. And so I would say, let's look at the ant that we might be wise and realize that if death's coming for us all, let's make sure we follow the one who has triumphed over it. Amen? Will you guys stand and let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are a good, loving, and wise king. We thank you, Lord, that we don't need to fear follow you, but everything in your testimony just shows us how much you love us, especially the cross and the resurrection, because, Lord, you went through what we couldn't possibly do. You bore so much pain and shame that belonged to us because you loved us. Your word is true when it says that God so loved the world that it gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And God, you call us to you to follow you, the King, but the Savior and Messiah as well that we might live. God, I pray you would give us the ability to check our priorities, check our motives, check the things that we're living. Lord, help us to step out of these death spirals of chasing the same things in life that people have chased and thought would fulfill them from the very beginning of history. Lord, may we not end up on that pile of dead bodies chasing that which will never fulfill us, but may we hear your voice. May we recognize your voice, that you are our good shepherd, and may we follow you. Lord, convict us, Lord, of our sin, and may we follow you, Lord. And you are our king. And we are grateful in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I love you guys. Go follow Jesus and tell other people as you go. We'll see you Sunday as we get back into the book of Galatians. God bless.